Hello and welcome to Extra Innings from the Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Sophie Dunselman, and this is the second in a special three-part series, sort of like summer school, but much more fun. In addition to the Ballpark Media Hub and the USAP blog, the LSE U.S. Center does much, much more, including public lectures with leading academics, such as this lecture from Professor Tali Mendelberg. You usually have to be here in London to gain access to these, but with this series, we're bringing three of these lectures to you, wherever you may be. For this lecture, I'll leave the introduction to Professor Peter Trubowitz, director of the LSE U.S. Center. Great. So we're going to go ahead and get started. I'd like to welcome everybody here. Um, So my name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm the head of the International Relations Department and the director um, of the U.S. Center, which is sponsoring tonight's lecture by Professor Tali Mendelberg. Um, A few words about Professor Mendelberg. She is a professor of politics at Princeton University leading scholar um, on inequality and uh, politics in the United States. She's written widely on uh, gender, on um, race, and on class. Um, She's the author of two award-winning books and numerous articles in political science, political psychology, political communication. Her first book, uh, The Race Card, Campaign Strategy, Implicit Messages, and the norm of equality with Princeton University Press. You got the clicker? Very good. <laughs> Thanks. So. Um, there you go. You're you're saved. Um, Have clicker. We'll talk. Yeah. Uh, her first book won um, the um, the very prestigious uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, Book Award in um, 2002 for the best book published in the United States during the prior year on. Government, Politics, and International Affairs. Um, Her second book, The Silent Sex, Gender, um, Deliberation, and Institutions, also with Princeton, um, won the David Sears Book Award, the Robert E. Lane Book Award, and the American Political Science Association's Experimental Book Award, right? Is that right? Experimental Book Award. Experimental Research. But she's not only an award-winning author, she's an award-winning teacher as well, uh, teaching courses at Princeton on gender and politics, race and politics, political psychology, and public opinion, among other topics. Uh, She got her PhD at the University of um, Michigan uh, and um, in Ann Arbor. Her work has been supported by grants and fellowships from the National Science Foundation, to the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, the Russell Sage Foundation, the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, And um, she's currently at work. We didn't get a chance to really talk about this, but is this a a new book project on status? Uh, That's related, but separate from this. I know, I know. So here tonight, 
She's here to talk about some uh, recent work on the effects of university life on economic views and fortunes of uh, students. Um, and uh, the talk title is um, the talk title is "Do American Universities Promote uh, Promote Income Inequality?" But it draws on um, some of this work that she has um, co-authored with some of her colleagues. The hashtag for tonight is LSC US um, uh, uh, INQ. Um, I think that's it. The only thing I have to say is if you haven't put your phone to silent, please do so now. And, um, and please join me in welcoming Tully Mendelberg to the LSE. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction, and I'm delighted to be here with you uh, this evening. So um, as mentioned, this talk is titled The Affluence Effect, College Socialization and Inequality in America, and it draws on research and collaboration with a set of very talented graduate students and postdoctoral researchers, uh, including Adam Thal, Catherine McCabe, Vittoria Marola, and Tanika Reshotri. Uh, we also owe a debt of gratitude to a number of funding agencies and to the UCLA Higher Education Research Institute, uh, which loaned us uh, much of the data. Uh, we're also grateful to um, the College and Beyond uh, data set uh, from the Mellon Foundation. So uh, lots of people helped us in doing this work. So one of the motivations for this project is a graph that might look familiar to some of you, which simply shows the rising levels of income inequality in the United States. Uh, income was relatively more flatly distributed earlier in the 20th century, and then sometime around the 1950s, 1960s, uh, 1970s, the level of inequality rose dramatically, and we're now at record levels of income inequality in the United States, so much so that the current contemporary period has been called the New Gilded Age as a result. And around the same time period, we're also seeing the decline in tax rates on the top marginal, uh, on the top uh, uh, income uh, level in the United States. So the top marginal tax rate used to be quite high, close to 90%. Uh, around 1950, and it's been declining ever since. So those two trends taken together uh, give rise to a real um, problem, and that is the possibility that government policy is creating some of this concentrated income at the top. Uh, but then that raises the possibility of a feedback effect, a kind of reinforcement, a reinforced cycle in which um, the affluent income shares are rising in part because government has allowed uh, affluent people to keep more of the income that they earn. So in other words, government policy is helping to create this uh, rising level of income inequality. Uh, and at the same time, policy is disproportionately shaped by affluent Americans. And I've posted here a long list of recent research citations that have made these two points. The uh, affluent income share is rising partly because of choices made by public policy, and that policy is increasingly been, being driven by the disproportionate political power of African Americans. So again, the motivation here is there seems to be a kind of self-reinforcing loop. A more affluence begets more and more successful efforts to defend affluent by those who hold it. 
Um, so I'm going to do this talk in two parts and tell you about the two facets of affluent social spaces, and specifically the social spaces that are embodied on university campuses in the United States. And so in part one of this talk, I'll tell you about the first study uh, where we talk about how affluent young adults attending colleges seem to be developing more affluent conservative economic views because they seem to be coming to a sense of more conservative subjective class interests. They seem to be kind of coming to the realization that they are members of an affluent class, legitimizing that affluence, and then coming to hold policy views that are more um, uh, sort of economically conservative as part of that package. And we also find that people who are not affluent on college campuses do not move in a countervailing direction. They're not moving in a leftward direction. And so the net result is that increasingly campuses seem to be shifting young adults in a more economically conservative direction. So that's the first part of the talk. And the second part of the talk, we're looking at political action. How engaged are people in the political world in terms of are they interested in politics? Do they discuss politics? Do they vote? Do they participate in election campaigns? and do they turn out to protest? That set of activities under the rubric of action is gonna be the focus of the second part of the talk. Um, and what we're gonna show, what I'm gonna show you uh, is that affluent students gain from these norms of political engagement that occur on college campuses. Middle-income students gain a little bit in a very specific form, namely election campaigning. And poor students benefit also in a very specific way in terms of their elevated protest level and elevated levels of organizational leadership on campus. Um, however, all of these three income groups gain in terms of voting. And so at the end of the day, overall, the gap in political action between the richer and the poorer on college campuses does not narrow. Colleges are not narrowing the class gap in political engagement or political participation, and in fact, there's evidence that they may be exacerbating it to some extent. So again, all of this adds up to a self-reinforcing loop. You have more income inequality in American society. That creates social settings, namely college campuses, that simply reinforce the motivation of the affluent to hang on to their affluence and to defend affluence through their political action. And we don't see a countervailing force from the rest of the population. So let me start with part one here, where we talk about views of government policy. So part of the motivation here is that when we look at adult Americans, what we see is a substantial gap between the policy preferences of the affluent, here it's the top 10% of the national income distribution, and the middle of the distribution. So I'm not even showing you the even larger gap between the rich and the poor, this is just the gap between the rich and the middle. And there's a theme here, which is uh, taxes. So the affluent are much more supportive than the average American of cutting the top marginal tax rate, of cutting the inheritance tax, instituting a flat tax, which again advantages the affluent, and cutting capital gains tax, which also advantages the affluent. So again, the theme is tax, 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 and tax. And the, um, uh, for the most part, the affluent are on board on many matters of policy with the middle, but on tax policy, especially tax policy that benefits the affluent, they are much more uh, conservative. 
Now you might think, well, what is there to explain here? After all, uh, this is just simple, straightforward, pocketbook self-interest, right? Everyone wants to mac maximize their own take-home pay and, and the amount that they keep, uh, and they believe that the government should keep its hands off of their own earnings. So what is there to explain here? The affluent are uh, just as much as everybody else wanting to maximize their income. Well, it turns out from a very large literature in political science that self-interest very rarely explains people's economic views. And what does matter instead is people's sense of what group they affiliate with. So when people are thinking about politics and what they want out of government, they're not thinking in terms of, I want government to maximize my pocketbook. Rather, they're thinking about what group am I part of and what do I want the government to do for that group that is salient for me. And in addition, we also know that people are thinking about values. Uh, they have a sense of right and wrong, uh, and so they end up legitimizing their opinions. Uh, why do I want the government to tax the wealthy less than it does? Well, because it's the right thing to do. The wealthy are job creators. The wealthy have benefited from an open system that allows everyone to get ahead. The wealthy are part of a meritocracy. That explains their wealth. All right, so that belief system um, really implicates uh, ethics. It implicates values, a sense of legitimacy. It's not just I'm going to get take whatever I can get. It's I'm going to demand what is coming to people like me. So that, in a nutshell, uh, seems to be the framework that explains a lot of Americans' public opinion. And so we're coming at this from that perspective. And in a nutshell, the argument here is that what's developed on American college campuses is this idea that wealth is legitimate and the government should keep its hands off of it as much as possible. That it's best for society overall if the affluent are simply allowed to do their own thing uh, unfettered, right? And this cartoon from the New Yorker essentially sums up in a more humorous fashion this idea, right? Meritocracy worked for my grandfather, it worked for my father, and by the way, it's also working for me. Uh, but the idea here is people are developing these ideas about what government's role should be when it comes to economics, when it comes to taxing the wealthy, in these very wealthy social spaces where people are tuning in to, you know, what is my community like? Uh, what do people like me, the people surrounding me in my social space, what do they think? And so the argument is essentially that affluence functions not only as a category of income or a category of resources, it also functions as an identity that comes with a subjective sense of class interests and it comes with social norms that develop in spaces where people from that category tend to predominate. Uh, where the affluence are concentrated in a particular social place, that's where we should expect to see these norms that justify um, uh, inequality and justify lower levels of taxation on the affluent. Uh, and so basically what we're seeing in the United States is affluent parents are increasingly sending their children to institutions of higher education where they are surrounded by many other affluent students. And so they develop this community of affluent peers and this concentration of people from affluent backgrounds creates social norms of affluence. And by that I mean affluent consumption, expensive goods, uh, expensive vacations, a kind of a lifestyle that um, assumes the need for and legitimacy of uh, high levels of income and high levels of wealth. 
And so the idea here at a theoretical level is that there's a social process that kind of fosters these policy preferences, which in turn then lead to more and more conservative economic policy. And that policy increasingly makes it difficult for non-affluent people to attend college uh, and creates this kind of self-reinforcing loop, right? So it's a social process. Given that it's a social process, given that this is a story about social norms that emerge in places with a lot of affluent people, what we are expecting to see is that it's the students who are the most embedded in the life of the campus, socially embedded students, who should be exhibiting the most change from the beginning of college to the end of college. So people are picking up social norms if they are socializing more, if they're embedded in social uh, processes and social institutions within campus. And this also means that it's not necessarily contact between specific individuals that's going to do a lot of the work here. So it's not about the contact hypothesis or lack of contact that rich students might have with poor students. Rather, we think this process has to do with people looking at their local community and asking, what does this community as a whole look like? What are the values of this community? What are the norms of this community? I want to fit in with that. So let me pick up on that. And through the, that process, they end up internalizing uh, these ideas about how government should not be taxing the wealthy. So affluent campuses uh, really are socializing students. This is a story about the college campus as a social institution that engages in political socialization, largely inadvertently, in that it selects in lots of affluent students through its admissions processes and financial aid uh, procedures. And this will activate these kind of latent, economically conservative, subjective interests of affluent people. So a corollary of this is that affluent students are going to be the ones who should be affected by attending college with a lot of other affluent peers. We should be seeing affluent students in particular kind of come to their sense of subjective interest as affluent people. Okay, so the, in, in a nutshell, the sum, summary here is we should be seeing more and more affluent students attending school, uh, attending university campuses, and as the level of affluence in the campus grows, what we're expecting to see is that affluent students in particular will become more economically conservative. So let me just give you a few suggestive um, pieces of evidence. So on this issue of affluence on campus, uh, I was talking to uh, Professor Trubowitz earlier and I mentioned that I went to college, I went to university at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for my undergraduate degree. And I was on a Pell Grant and I received work-study funding. And when I looked around, it seemed like, you know, this was sort of a common, a common state of existence. Lots of people were on work-study, lots of people were getting federal Pell Grants, which went to the middle and bottom of the income distribution. Well, a couple years ago, the New York Times published a list of universities and colleges with the percent students on a Pell Grant. And Madison was at 10%. Now, this is a public school. It was set up to serve kind of your median person, right? The median family is supposed to benefit from public higher education. And yet only 10% of the students are in the middle or bottom of the income distribution, even at a state school like this. That's just an illustration of this more general statistical trend where what you see is the people from the top of the income distribution have become much more likely to complete a four-year college degree and everyone else 
while a little bit higher than they were before, is still lagging way behind. Now, if you do um, a calculation using these rates, what you end up is a campus that on average is over 50% affluent, right? Over 50% of the students are coming from the top of the income distribution on your average college campus in America. So we've got growing disproportionate access to college by affluent Americans. This is going to concentrate income, high income, on your typical college campus. What is that going to do? Well, here's a, a little illustration of the kind of social norms that affluence creates. The more affluent students there are, the more they create a sort of culture of affluence. And this is what students see around them as they make their way uh, from the first year of college to the end of college. Um, lots of sort of affluent displays. Now, there's one more piece of this, which is that you might be thinking, well, this is, this is clearly not deterministic, right? You can imagine a social space full of affluent people who are not engaged in these displays of affluence, who do not believe that affluence is uh, so legitimate that it comes before everything else. Um, and so there's a missing piece of it. And that missing piece is that the campus also have, has to have a strong materialistic inclination. So the social norm on the campus has to be very materialistically oriented for us to expect to see a shift in an economically conservative direction. And so we're going to be measuring this very specifically with our survey data, but let me again give you an illustration of what these norms of materialism and financial gain look like. And this is from my current institution from Princeton. And the campus newspaper, the Daily Princetonian, printed this article by uh, a starting freshman student titled, Are We Here to Make Money? So here's what she writes. Everyone's here to make money. An upperclassman, nonchalantly chowing down on a late meal quesadilla, declared to me the first Thursday of freshman week. Okay, it's her first week on campus. And this is what she's picking up. And the upperclassman elaborates. Pre-meds want to make money. Engineers want to make money. And of course, econ kids want to make bucket loads of money. And here's the crucial part for our story. A murmuring of approval from our table at First Campus Center accompanied this assertion. And even though his candor was startling, I nodded along. Now, this article goes on to talk about how this student finds this very disconcerting. That she personally doesn't have these values. Actually, she's thinking these are antithetical values to mine. But she's finding herself sort of pulled along by this murmur of approval. And as a starting freshman, the thing that she most worries about is not finding a community, right? And so this sets up a social environment that's going to pull people along. And if this is what you're exposed to day after day, week after, after week, for four years of your most formative young adult years, then it may have some impact on you at the end of the day, regardless of what your starting values are. So again, the hypotheses here are, here are first of all, uh, campuses that have a high affluent percentage are going to trigger these latent class perspectives, and we're going to see more economically conservative affluent students at the beginning than at the end of college. And since this is a story about social processes and social norms, we expect the effect to be especially concentrated among students who are the most embedded in campus life. 
the students who are going to be sitting there day after day listening to the talk around the table and who are going to be most open to absorbing that message. The most socially embedded should be the most affected. And again, because just affluence by itself isn't going to do it, we're expecting the effect to be especially powerful on campuses where the social norm is also very materialistic, where there's a lot of talk about how everybody wants to make money. Okay, so just very briefly, the data that we're using here uh, is borrowed from the UCLA Higher Education Research Institute, which conducts these surveys across hundreds of campuses, many of them on a yearly basis, and they've been doing this for several decades. And so we've aggregated together this very large number of responses, and we've got a lot of them interviewed at the beginning of freshman year, so the very first week that they're on campus, or even before that. And then many of them are re-interviewed at the end of their senior year, as they finish college. So we've got the same person at two different points in time, at wave one and again at wave two. And this is important because it's going to allow us to hold constant, to account for lots of other variables that could be running around here. The affluent students that we're looking at come from the top 10% of the national income distribution. <coughs> uh, and what we do is we then take the percent of students who are affluent, who are in the top 10% of income, and we divide that distribution into four categories. So we've got campuses with very few affluent students all the way to campuses with more than half affluent students. And that's going to be the main variable that we're looking at. That's the, the indicator of likely existence of an affluent, affluent norm on the college campus. And the nice thing about this data set is because it's so big, we've got lots and lots of affluent students and because it's administered by schools, it's got a very high response rate. So some very nice properties here of this data set. Now in addition, we're going to replicate, and I'll show you some more analyses or some more results using a second data set called the College and Beyond uh, data set that comes from the Mellon Foundation. So the main thing I'm going to show you is response on this question on the survey that says wealthy people should pay a larger share of taxes than they do now. And people could disagree strongly, disagree somewhat, agree somewhat, or agree strongly, and we've coded that from zero to one. So one is going to be disagree strongly, the most liberal response. And we've accounted for a lot of other factors, right? So we're interested in looking at the effect of attending school with a lot of rich kids. Well, that's probably not a random thing, right? And the people who attend school with a lot of affluent kids might also be inadvertently attending school that's very selective. Or they might be attending a school that's private as opposed to public. Uh, or they might be attending school in the Northeast. So we've tried to account for as many of this, these confounding factors as possible. Uh, we've looked at the individual level factors, characteristics of the individual student. We've looked at characteristics of the cohort of students who come in with that student. And we've looked at the characteristics of the schools where these students are going. So we've accounted for whether the school is private or public, whether it's large or small, where the school is located, uh, whether the school is mostly female. We've got some women's colleges in here. Uh, we've also accounted for how selective the school is by looking at the proportion of students with high test scores, proportion of students that come with a high GPA. So we're really trying to account for as many of the things that might matter about the school and the students as possible. Let me flag a few other things that 
people generally ask about. So some people say, well, what about business majors? Maybe kids are getting conservative because they've decided to major in business. So we have accounted for that in this analysis. Another question that comes up is, well, maybe the kids are growing uh, con conservative because uh, the faculty at the school where they're attending aren't very liberal. So we've accounted for the faculty members' overall ideology on this exact question of taxing the wealthy. So we've accounted for how liberal and conservative the faculty are on taxing the wealthy. And here's the basic effect of attending a more affluent campus, that is, attending a campus that has large proportions of kids from the top 10% of the income distribution. The kids who are attending school with only a few rich kids end up somewhere around the middle of the scale. This is moderate. Right? So they're not particularly economically liberal or conservative. Whereas the kids who attend school with a majority affluent, school, affluent students emerge slightly more conservative on economics. This is the question about whether the wealthy should be taxed. Uh, sorry, actually, so disagree is the more conservative response. So here we've got the schools with more affluent students generating a more economically conservative response, that wealthy people should not pay a larger share of taxes than they do now. So part of what we spent quite a bit of time doing is figuring out whether there's a real causal story here. Is it true that attending affluent schools actually causes people to become more economically conservative? Or is it possible that the people who tend to select into these schools would have become more conservative over time anyway, whether they had been there or somewhere else? And so we've got this long list of um, sort of modeling exercises that we've engaged in in order to make sure that this really is a causal story. And I'd be happy to talk more about that in the Q&A. Let me flag briefly for you one of my favorite analyses uh, because it was actually on the more creative side, where we used this college and beyond data set, which asked kids where they applied to go to school and whether they are accepted or rejected from each of those places they applied to. And then we were able to calculate what the affluent percentages of each of the schools they applied to. And we were able to replicate these effects on a subset of students who showed a willingness to go to affluent schools and showed a willingness to go to non-affluent schools, but they were only accepted to one category and not the other. So they had no choice. They couldn't select into an affluent school or select out of an affluent school. They're only allowed to go to one or the other category. And we were able to replicate these effects among people who couldn't select. So there, there is no selection story possible, leaving only the causal story. And I'm, again, happy to talk more during the questions. Now, in addition, we also wanted to verify that there really is this economic story going on. And so if, if it's really about economic interests kind of getting activated, then we shouldn't see effects on social issues. And in fact, we don't. We don't see an affluent school effect on opinion about abortion or opinion about LGBT relationships or opinion about racial discrimination. No effect there where you would not expect it. And as I mentioned, we expected this to be a story about subjective interests attached to affluent identities. And that's in fact consistent with what we found. It's only the affluent students who seem to be moving in this economically conservative direction. 
Now, I mentioned two other hypotheses that have to do with the social norm story. One is, if it's really about social norms, you'd see the most socially active and socially embedded students exhibiting the highest effects. And that's, in fact, what we found. The people who are joining fraternities or sororities are especially susceptible to this conservatizing effect. Now, you might say, well, isn't that just an effect of being a fraternity or sorority member? Well, no, because if you're in a fraternity or sorority at a low affluent school, there's almost no effect on you. You have to be in a fraternity and sorority in a high affluent school to see this conservatizing effect. So just being a fraternity member by itself does almost nothing. It has to be a mechanism of being embedded in this larger norm of affluence. And most important of all, it's only in the campuses where a lot of students on a survey question indicated that it's very important to make money, only on those uh, campuses do you see this affluence effect having a big conservatizing result. So again, it's not just being in a school where a lot of the kids are materialistic. It's being in a materialistic school that is also extremely affluent that generates this economically conservative reaction. So there are some dogs that didn't bark here, right? There's the affluent school effect, and then there's also sort of some other possible factors that didn't have much to do with this result. So as I indicated earlier, this is not explained by either having a lot of rich friends or not having a lot of poor friends. In other words, this is not about the contact hypothesis. It's not that rich kids need to interact and have friendships with people from a different background. That's a very different mechanism from what we're identifying. And actually, in presenting this research, a number of administrators said, yeah, you know, it's a real problem um, having kids you know, in our school who never meet and never talk and never establish a friendship with someone who's different from them. Well, unfortunately, that really doesn't have anything to do with this. It may be a problem in its own sense for something else, but it doesn't explain this effect. So it's not about. It's not something we can approve by bringing people from different backgrounds together and having them become friends. That's not where it is. And some of the other non-barking dogs include the faculty's views. So you might see articles in the media from time to time talking about how, you know, from a conservative perspective, it's a real problem that academia is dominated by liberals. Well, it's not a problem when it comes to economic views because the effect of that is extremely small. And finally, business major doesn't explain this. So this is not happening because people are deciding to major in business. In fact, lots and lots of students from more modest economic backgrounds are the ones who major in business, and they're not being affected like this. So it's not about the absence of liberal faculty. It's not about people becoming business majors. And it's not because they're not being uh, establishing friendships with uh, poorer students. Okay, so what we've established so far, first of all, affluent majority campuses are more economically conservative. This affluent school effect survives a lot of tests that I'd be happy to talk about. The effect is located among affluent students specifically. And one thing I didn't mention is this college and beyond data re-interviewed people four years after graduation. And we're still seeing the effect four years later. So it does seem to be a socializing effect. People are internalizing these ideas. And we found support for two of the big predictions from this norms theory, this idea that 
campuses develop strong social norms that nudge people. The social embeddedness uh, variable explained or enhances the affluence effect, and campuses that are very materialistic are the ones where we really see this affluence effect coming to the fore. Okay. Um, so, a few points of conclusion for this first part, for the part that explains people's views. First of all, this suggests that college is, in fact, a very important agent of political socialization. Uh, colleges are a highly significant social and political space, and they're influencing people when they're open for influence, when they're quite young. And what we're finding is that these effects seem to last uh, for a number of years after people graduate from school. Uh, so this confirms some classic studies. For example, Newcomb's uh, study of Bennington College in Vermont, uh, which was conducted during the New Deal period, and was the first to suggest that college has this really powerful effect in shaping people's attitudes. When the Bennington College women were reinterviewed 50 years later, uh, they still showed the stamp of having been in Bennington. But the interesting twist is that Newcomb found that these Bennington College women became very liberal despite coming from affluent backgrounds. And so the kind of received wisdom passed on in social science is that college has a liberalizing effect. Well, this shows that college can also have a conservatizing effect. So yes, college can be an important agent of socialization, but it's not necessarily a liberal one. Um, a second takeaway here is that this is a story about the feedback or downstream effects, uh, inadvertent effects, of some seemingly innocuous and well-justified policies. So schools are not choosing <coughs> affluent students, uh, but they are selecting students into school based on characteristics like high test scores that are increasingly and very, very heavily determined by family income. And so inadvertently, by using these kinds of policies and by not providing sufficient assistance to students from the middle and bottom of the distribution, they're essentially creating these social spaces that then end up indirectly reinforcing income inequality. So it's not just the missing bottom of the income distribution that's the problem, although that is a problem, but it's also the missing middle of the distribution that's part of the problem because the essential problem is the concentration of affluence in the social space. And so an implication for policy is, first of all, make sure that there are admissions and selection and recruitment policies that are also attracting in the middle and the bottom of the income distribution. Um, and uh, an additional implication, given the norms of materialism, is that schools uh, have a responsibility to try to combat the emergence of these very strong materialistic norms. So it's not just having lots of affluent students, it's also having materialistic students that's the problem. And part of the educational mission of higher education is to inculcate socially productive, socially responsible norms. And clearly, schools have more room for improvement on that. So let me, let me quickly, in the interest of time, uh, tell you about the second part of this project. So we've talked about what happens to people's policy views. Let's talk about what happens to their engagement with politics, um, how much they participate in politics, how interested they are in politics. Um, and the starting point for this is, um, in America, the system of higher education is financed in part by government funds, by public funds. And this was established by the Truman Commission after World War II uh, as part of a massive infusion of government funding into higher education 
which led to a possibly unparalleled at the time high quality system that educated lots and lots of people from the middle class and from the bottom as well. But part of the justification of this is open access, right? Why are we investing public funds in higher education? Because higher education is going to serve a public good. It's going to be an engine of upward mobility, both economically and politically. It's supposed to be pulling in people from all walks of life who are going to prosper in all senses of the word and become economically and politically influential people. And in fact, if you want to predict whether someone's going to vote in the United States, the single best indicator is their social class. And that's true regardless of what ages you're looking at and regardless of many other factors that you might account for. So education does, in fact, seem to go hand in hand with a more active citizenry. But what this means, paradoxically, is that college can become an economically inegalitarian force, right? Low education is now highly correlate, correlated with lower income. Lower income, lower education adults have a much lower propensity to engage in politics. And so the question for this project is, what do affluent schools have to do with all of this? Do affluent schools exacerbate this class gap in political participation, in voting, campaigning, being interested in politics? Um, do they exacerbate the class gap? Um, or do they shrink the class gap by elevating the activity of lower income students? So very briefly, there are reasons to expect some negative affluence campus effects, but also some other reasons to ex expect positive affluent campus effects. So on the negative side of the ledger, it may be that there is a cultural mismatch for lower income students attending school with a lot of affluent kids. And sociologists have increasingly been writing uh, about the, these findings indicating a fairly strong sense of alienation on the part of lower income students, especially because of the affluence that they feel they're sort of drowned out by. Um, and it's almost a sense of, you know, coming from a culture where, uh, you know, you might not have relatives who talk about Shakespeare. Um, you have never been to a museum. Uh, you don't know what uh, a ski slope looks like. So there's a kind of sense of, you know, all of these kids coming from more privileged backgrounds know all of these things that you didn't even know existed. Um, and so the sense of alienation or cultural mismatch, a sense of, I don't belong here, uh, that sociologists have been documenting, this might depress political engagement, might depress political participation in the sense that it might lower people's sense of personal efficacy, right? If I don't really belong here, I'm not, you know, I'm not a governing kind of citizen. Uh, I don't have what it takes to really rise to the top might be the message. Another possible mechanism here is academic disadvantage. We know that, in general, lower-income kids come from lower-preparation high schools, high schools where advanced classes are not always available. Uh, and perhaps they end up with lower grades in school, which then, in turn, might make them feel like they don't have much to contribute, lowering their engagement in politics and their leadership activities. Uh, a third possibility is financial disadvantage. So very simply, lower income kids end up having to work more hours while they're at school. They have a high loan burden because of rising tuition, and they might not be getting enough financial aid. All of this might simply create little time for anything political. And finally, a hypothesis that was suggested to us recently 
is that it may be that these affluent campuses are sort of ignoring the particular needs of lower income kids. What does this mean? Um, if you have to live on campus in the dorms, um, you might not be able to afford to go home on vacation, but the school will close the dorm during the break anyway, leaving you without any place to be, right? It's sort of, we don't really see you, we don't see your particular needs. Um, or a lot of kids from lower income backgrounds end up doing menial jobs on campus where they're essentially serving their more affluent peers in the cafeteria or even cleaning their dorm rooms. So these stigmatizing institutional practices might again be signaling to lower income kids in particular that, hey, you don't really belong to the community and your opinion is not really valued. That might depress engagement and participation. And on the other hand, there might be some positive effects from attending affluent schools. And that has to do with, again, the fact that higher income people are more active. So as kids come into college, there's already an income gap. And being around people who exhibit a high level of activity might become socially contagious. So there may be these very strong norms of political participation, collective engagement. Um, everyone seems to be wanting to be a leader in an organization. Uh, there's lots more discussion about politics and so on. All of this is heightened on affluent campuses. It might actually help close the participation gap between richer and poorer students. And so now, just for the sake of time, I'm going to kind of go through this technical stuff quickly. But let me signal to you that I'm looking at several different outcomes here. So we're looking at what we call a passive engagement index, which is how important is it to you to keep up with political affairs, to influence the political structure, and so on. So this is sort of motivation to engage with politics, which we call passive engagement. Not in a bad way, not, not bad passive, but just sort of, you know, we don't know if you're doing these things or not, but at least you want to be doing these political things. So that's passive engagement. Then on the active engagement side, there's electoral participation, voting or working in a campaign. There's protest. Have you participated in protests? And there's organizational participation, which is elected to student government, or have you been a leader in an organization? organization. So lots of different ways to measure people's engagement with politics and participation in collective affairs. And in a nutshell, after controlling for lots of things like we did before, here is the summary of results. So we're seeing a modest increase in people's passive participation from the beginning of college to the end of college. A modest amount that's pretty equally distributed. So no matter whether you're rich, middle class, or poor, you're going to end college a little bit more interested in political affairs than you started with. In terms of electoral participation, we're seeing an increase from college that slightly favors middle-income students. So everybody reports voting a little bit more after college than before college. As far as campaigning, it's only middle-income students that end up elevating their level from pre- to post-college. On protesting, we're seeing a modest increase favoring lower-income students. In other words, it's only low-income students who end up reporting more protesting activity at the end of college than they did before college. And finally, on the organizational leadership dimension, we find a heavy effect that especially favors lower-income students, such that it's mostly lower-income students who gain in terms of organizational leadership. So I can come back and answer more questions about that. And here's 
Here's a graphic summary of these effects that I've just listed. Um, let me give you a couple of additional results. So we thought the positive effect of college would be mediated especially through this idea of a norm of political participation, right? It's in schools where a lot of kids are participating that we'd expect to see um, a rise in participation. This turns out to be very limited. It's limited just to voting. So it's only voting that's affected by this norm of political participation on campus. And more importantly, for our purposes, it only helps high-income students. So the only benefits of affluent campuses are for high-income students and for their voting. That means middle-income students, lower-income students are not reaping the rewards. They're not reaping the benefits that affluent uh, campuses can provide in terms of these participation norms. Um, I'm going to skip over this in the, for the sake of time. Um, and just go right to the summary of the remaining effects. Um, and so what we're finding here is these affluent schools are leaving untouched the income gap on these passive engagement, the I want to change the political system, I care about politics, that stuff, leaving it untouched. They're basically leaving untouched the gap in voting. They're raising everyone's levels modestly, right? So they're leaving untouched the gaps in participation, excuse me, passive participation and voting. They're narrowing the gap somewhat on protesting and organizational leadership because they're boosting lower income students more. Um, on campaigning, they're boosting middle income students slightly more. So they're narrowing the gap between the rich and everybody else on protesting and organizational leadership for the most part. And the mechanisms, as I said, are interesting. So it's only the affluent who are benefiting from the norm of political engagement on affluent campuses. Um, the results that I can show you in more detail during the Q&A show that it's poor students who benefit from more generous financial aid policies uh, when it comes to both protesting and organizational leadership. So strong financial aid policies really do help. Uh, one of the mechanisms for affluent school effects was supposed to be financial aid, and in fact, that's what we find. Financial aid really does matter. When there's low financial aid, we're not seeing an advantage to lower income students. When there's higher levels of financial aid, we do see lower income students starting to gain uh, in closing the gap. So, uh, and the final uh, mechanism, which had to do with social alienation and the cultural mismatch, gets some uh, uh, support here in that students who uh, think that the campus is not very welcoming, doesn't have a very good sense of community, are the ones to protest. So it actually turns out to be a mobilizing effect on lower income students' protest. They're seeing this uh, uh, kind of alienating campus, but instead of it turning them off, it actually seems to mobilize them to protest. Uh, they are not affected by academic disadvantage, and they're also not affected by any of these stigmatizing practices. Uh, okay, so let me just take a moment and sum up overall here. The overall conclusion from part one and part two. So we found that affluent colleges conservatize affluent students, and that seems to work via this mechanism of social norms, especially materialistic norms of affluence. We're seeing that some forms of political engagement are rising because of college and some of them rise for all students, regardless of uh, income background. 
The gap does narrow in some forms. It narrows a little bit on protest, and it narrows a little bit in organizational leadership. These should count in favor on the plus side of the ledger of affluent campuses. Uh, but we're also seeing a kind of equal increase in voting, which means that the voting gap in income remains untouched from the beginning to the end of college. And overall, this really kind of strongly argues for a model um, of affluent social spaces as having political significance. And you know, we're seeing an increasing concentration of affluent people in all sorts of social spaces, in all sorts of institutions, including in neighborhoods, the growing concentration of affluence. Uh, affluent people are living more and more in neighborhoods surrounded by other affluent people. They're attending school more and more surrounded by affluent people. This has real political implications. It's kind of a training ground for the future elite uh, that ends up reinforcing the pro-affluence policy, uh, both via the opinion track and via the action uh, track. And this kind of a, the lack of countervailing force. The non-affluent are not becoming more economically progressive, and they're also not becoming um, mobilized in any significant way. Okay, so the bumper sticker, I've got two cartoons here. Um, norms of affluence matter. So here's one guy says to the other, check it out, bro. This pneumatic tube pipes us from the front to Wall Street. And the other message here is there's a huge income gap on campus uh, where a presumably lower income person says to a presumably higher income person who's drinking a cocktail, is that your first Molotov cocktail? Thank you very much. Thank you. So that concludes this summer session. A big thank you to Professor Tali Mendelberg. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gelson and Sophie Dunselman. That's me. This event is part of our America and Global Perspective series and is supported by the British Association for American Studies and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangersswings.com. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Tune in next time for our third and final lecture in this three-part series. We'll be hearing from Professor Kathy Kramer about the politics of rural resentment. Thanks for listening.